You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Klein. In this episode, we talk about the interpretation or misinterpretation of Marx, known as value form theory. And in particular, I will be interviewing Andrew about a debate he had almost a decade ago with a prominent value form theorist named Patrick Murray. Whether you are new to the debate over value form theory, or if you are already knowledgeable enough to have taken a side, you will still find this an interesting and edifying discussion. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of Marxist Humanist Initiative. In just a moment, Andrew and I will be talking about value form theory and his debate with Patrick Murray. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. So the headlines this week are that the Trump administration's own internal CDC reportings predict that uh, the daily death rate will be increasing up to 3,000 people a day by the end of the month. But despite this, um, we are barreling forward into this reopening of society, as they call it, in a completely laissez-faire, uncoordinated fashion. Every state uh, and every county and every individual is supposed to figure this out on their own, what they think is safe. With So we are solving this public health problem by letting people just make their own random decisions about things. Um, in the meantime, neo-Nazis with AK-47s are storming the state house in Michigan, egged on by the president of the United States, uh, Lysol Don who is also encouraging citizens to drink bleach and shine lights into their bodies to fight the virus. <laughs> yes. There's my, my news summary. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, and when you spoke about the acceleration, you know, of the pandemic, this is not just the, the, the natural spread that we're talking about. Uh, there is the natural spread, but then there is this concerted push from, obviously, uh, corporate interests, from the right wing, from the Trump people wanting to be reelected. There's a concerted push to end the stay-at-home orders, to lessen them, to reopen the economy, reopen the country. What they're, what they're doing is they're saying, okay, the, the social distancing has worked. Okay, it's worked well enough that we can ignore it and go back and start killing people again. So that, that's, that's the basis of the, the, the acceleration. I mean, right now, we're, we've been running in the United States about, uh, for a few weeks, uh, 2,000 deaths per day on average, you know, give or take some hundred. You know, and they're expecting by the end of uh, May because of this relaxation of the the stay-at-home orders and the social distancing and all of that, they're expecting it to creep up to to, to three thousand. You know, and and basically all of the all of the experts are saying, you know, until we have a vaccine uh, and or massive testing and tracing of people's contact, you know, and quarantining of people, that doesn't look in sight. There's no end. There there is no end to this, and it's going to get worse and worse. Uh, you know, until seventy percent of the U.S 
this population has been exposed to, to the COVID-19, and you know, maybe, hopefully, nobody's even sure of that, the immunity will mean that you'll be immune by having had contact with it, which nobody is sure of at this point anymore. And there seem, it seems not to be the case from, from some you know, partial information that we now have. Yeah, it could be the opposite. It could be that repeated exposures are more dangerous. And then we have the complications of the fall flu season. So it's looking at like a total train wreck. And now we're normalizing Nazis, you know, good people on both sides once again, you know, and then and the governor of Michigan should supposedly have sat down with Nazis and worked something out with them. You know, meanwhile, should we meanwhile, we should be mainlining Lysol. Right. And I, I want everybody who told us that Hillary would have been just as bad to tell me that if Hillary Clinton had become president, we would have had a president of the United States telling us to mainline Lysol and, you know, saying there's really fine people, you know, with the swastikas and the Confederate flags storming the state house with arms, armed people storming the state house in Michigan. That yeah. would have really happened, right? Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is totally insane. And then, you know, what's driving me crazy is this, that we're reopening everything and with, with no plan. And now it's just become a matter of people's personal judgment about what they as individuals can calculate and deem is safe for them to do. Uh, and and this, this is like not the way you're supposed to handle public health issues because they're not, it's not a matter of individual risk calculation when it's a public health issue. Right. I mean, people are going to now be told by their employers, work is open, come back to work, and they have to decide whether it's actually safe for them to go to work without any actual information or guidance. So schools are going to reopen and parents are going to have to figure out, is it safe to send our kids to school? Do we're going to risk possibly, you know, our own death or death of family members because we want to send our kids back to school without actually being provided with the information someone would need to make that sort of risk-benefit analysis? Right. I think even the, I think even the experts can't tell you what the risk is right now. You know, uh, in in statistics, there's a distinction made between risk and uncertainty. Risk is like when you can quantify the, the, the probability. You know, there's a 10 percent chance, there's a 23 percent chance. Uncertainty is, is basically a measure of your lack of ability to do that. And there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty in all the numbers we have. I mean, nobody knows what, what the, the death rate, uh, well, even, I mean, that's a loose expression, but nobody knows what the, what the, what the death rate is from, from this virus. Yeah, so yeah, individuals are being left on their own. States are being left on their own to, you know, make their own policy to, you know, try to get their own supplies before the, 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 the feds take the supplies away, the test kit. The, the, the protective personal equipment, all of that stuff. But the worst of it is, of course, this emergency wartime declaration that, you know, we got to reopen the meatpacking plants, you know, and, and, and what's happening there is people are basically now being made into forced laborers. I mean, this is basically a form of uh, involuntary servitude because they're going to be denied, maybe they're already being denied uh, unemployment insurance benefits and, and whatever relief if 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 the workers in these plants don't go back so they're not being given any you know opportunity to uh, you know make their own decisions and it's of course no uh, accident whatever that these are workers you know real working class workers and it's absolutely no accident at all you know that they are heavily uh, immigrant and a lot of them probably undocumented 
Um, and I mean, this is, you know, it's not just craziness and incompetence and bumbling. There, there, there is that probably coming down from the administration, you know, the Trumpites. But there's a, a tremendous amount of racism, you know, permeating all of this. Uh, and it gets talked about as, you know, urban-rural divide. But, I mean, what has happened to date, as we know, is uh, who has suffered the most in terms of mortality? Black people, immigrants, you know, as well as old people, right? But... So you're you're getting all of this all of this right wing kind of like pushback against the stay at home orders, the social distancing, all of this, because at some level, you know, the white population, better off or rural, thinks that it's relatively safe and that it can you know benefit off of the backs of the black people and, and the immigrants. Okay, it, it's not going to work in the end. I don't think. I mean. From what I know about the, the spread of this disease, which is, well, nobody really knows, but, it, you know, it's just coming slower to the populations that are not as dense. You know, it's coming slower because they're not as dense. Yeah, I'm still wondering if the reality of death and disease will somehow pierce through the thin veneer of propaganda that Trump has spun around this thing. Maybe, maybe. But, you know, you, some of these rural areas are like, well, you know, they got, uh, you know, 200 deaths or something, but that's in the, the local meatpacking plant. And that's a basically, you know, uh, Im immigrant population that has little contact with the, you know, the, 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 the uh, quote, white people, you know, in, in, in the area. Mm -hmm. So, you know, wherever you've got statistics, there, there are these divisions um, between who's yeah. really heavily affected and, and who's less. But if this thing, I mean, as long as biologically, you know, we're all pretty much the same here, which is the case. As far as I understand it, you get slower spread, you get faster spread. But if this keeps on going, you know, without quarantining, without isolation, tracing of people's contacts... It's going to spread, and when it spreads, the places that have gotten hit, you know, relatively mildly so far, that's it's only a matter of time before they get hit heavily, and then what's going to happen? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, um, Amanda Marcotte in uh, Salon, I think yesterday, wrote a, wrote a piece, and she just said, yeah, you know, this is going to happen to them, and are they going to learn their lesson? You know, no, they're just going to change their tune and blame it on, you know, the, 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 the people in New York and the people who China and, and whoever for doing it to them. They're just going to pivot and instead of saying they were wrong about the social distancing being needed, they were wrong about mm, uh, yeah. the stay at home. They're just going to, you know, blame blame everybody else. So th there's not going to be any learning, you know, that, that's her estimation what's going to happen. It was a good piece by her. Well, that's about all the time we have for this current event section. Uh, up next, our discussion about the value form theory. So, Andrew, the plan for today's podcast is to be talking about value form theory or the so-called value form paradigm, which you are a critic of. Specifically, we'll be discussing criticisms of value form theory that you made um, a while back and Patrick Murray's response to you. You made your criticisms of the value form paradigm in a paper entitled on Capitalism's Historic Specificity and Price Determination, Comments on the Value Form Paradigm. And Murray responded to you in a paper entitled 
avoiding bad abstractions, a defense of co-constitutive value form theory. So first, I think, you know, we're going to need to uh, give our audience a little bit of context here about what value form theory is and why they should be interested in, in hearing your take on this debate. So can you start us off with just a quick overview of what value form theory is? Yeah, uh, sure. It's a strand of Marx-inspired value theory, whether it's said to be Marx's own position or a better version of what Marx should have said. That depends on the particular person. But it emphasizes the role of money and markets to capitalism and money and markets to value. Uh, and it began really, I mean, there are precursors, but it really begin, began in the 1970s uh, in response to the Schroffian, near Ricardian, whatever, uh, allegations uh, that Marx's own value theory was internally inconsistent. And what the value form people, or whatever they called themselves back then, were doing was trying to evade the whole issue. Um, and what they did is say, well, Marx had this embodied labor theory of value, this quantitative theory of value, and that's inconsistent. Or you're misinterpreting what he did as a quantitative embodied labor theory of value. He had another one. Maybe it was his only one. Maybe it was his, you know, Sunday best value theory that's qualitative and deals with abstract labor and, you know, basically tells us that value is, you know, ultimately determined when the goods are sold and the commodity's value really is the amount of money for which it sells. Uh, and, you know, since that's basically standard neoclassical mainstream economics, what it says, uh, the allegations of internal inconsistency cannot be lodged against it. So you're defending Marx by basically saying, well, you know, what really is Marx's theory or should be Marx's theory isn't internally inconsistent because it's no different from standard uh, economics. So we'll get into some more specifics later on in the interview, but uh, for now, can you just say in general what it is you find so objectionable about value form theory? Sure. Um, let me first say that, you know, there's not one unified value form school. Uh, so not all of my criticisms apply equally to all of the value formists. Um, but just generally speaking, I don't happen to like their theories, um, but I do think they're entitled to them. Uh, and I don't think, you know, you should judge theories by whether you like them or not. But, you know, there's certain criteria for evaluating theories, how successfully they explain and predict phenomena, uh, and, you know, are they internally consistent, uh, not whether you find them personally attractive. But by the same token, Marx is entitled to his theories, too. And in that regard, I think that the behavior and writings of many, if not most, value form theorists and Marxist economists and radical academics generally, their, their behavior and writings are quite objectionable in not allowing Marx to have his own theories. They attribute their ideas and Things to Marx. You know, it's their idea, but they say it's Marx without adequate grounds for saying that. And sometimes also they allege without any adequate grounds that there's inconsistencies or ambivalences, is another term, in Marx that need to be fixed with their stuff. I think that's really deleterious to the, the forward move, movement and development and progress uh, of ideas because who's going to want to produce, you know, any, any intellectual products, articles, books, you know, research questions when, you know, your legacy is that people come along and they make of it what they want that's uh, in their interests. Um, you know, people wonder, like, why we don't have more people like Marx. And I think that's, that's part of the reason is, like, you know, look at what they've done to, to him. 
him? Who, who, who wants to be, become the, the next Marx under those circumstances? Um, also, I would say, just in terms of academic practice, I, I, I think that uh, value form people like the other academics and radical economists and stuff, they have not been very good about trying to resolve disputes with their critics, you know, investigating the, the matters, debating, having criticism to try to uh, get to the truth of the matters and resolve the issues. Uh, they seem mostly intent on attracting a base of people that likes their stuff, on saying what it is that they, they want to say, making names for themselves, and so on. And I, I don't, I, I think that's just the, a shirking of intellectual responsibility. Uh, and then there's the behavior of some of the people, um, especially the younger value form people. I won't even get into that, um, but quite reprehensible behavior I've experienced. Um, so, you know, who was Patrick Murray and what what was this debate all about? Well, Patrick Murray is a philosopher, uh, professor of philosophy at Creighton University in Nebraska, prominent value form theorist. As, you, as you've said, he's written a lot about value form theory over the years, uh, also more generally about Marx's method in science. Well, what we wanted to do, we, the, uh, Alan Freeman and I, who uh, edited a, a, a journal, we wanted to have a symposium, you know, a series of papers where there was uh, a discussion of value form theory, a debate over value form theory, what value form theorists say, uh, both in itself and what they say about Marx, uh, and to have that debate with people who adhere to the temporal single system interpretation of Marx's value theory. So have, have an engagement between both sides. And where did this debate happen? It was in Critique of Political Economy, uh, which was a short-lived journal that Alan Freeman and I uh, co-edited. Okay. Um, we can post links to all the papers. Yeah, the, the, the journal is you know free online uh, and the, carries that symposium. So um, it's got – yeah, go ahead. So this debate was nine years ago, and Murray responded to your criticism nine years ago, but you haven't replied to him in the meantime. So why is that? Have you been distracted or, uh, you know – were you? Did it take you nine years to figure out how to respond? Yeah, no, it didn't take me. It did not take me nine years to figure out how to respond. Um, I got more. In, I got involved in more uh, pressing uh, matters, uh, but also, you know, the the attitudes of most of the value form people and the whole circle, not really wanting to engage, not being willing to engage lack of interest in getting to the truth of what Marx's own theories were, I, I just found that very frustrating. And, you know, that kind of stuff is meant to frustrate you and make you, you know, go off and do other things, and, and that happened. But, you know, we tried to get this whole symposium with several, you know, proponents of the temporal single system interpretation, several value form people, uh, and in the, you know, in the end, as it turned out, the only value form contribution we got to the symposium was that of Murray. So, it was just you know, I've always, I guess, wanted to respond, although it really got seriously put on the back burner. But it's been frustrating and other things, uh, you know, took uh, priority. There were other papers in the symposium that were also critical. And Murray responds to not just you, right? His paper responds to a lot of different people. Yeah, since, since he was the one ending up holding the bag for their side, so to speak, he had this burden of answering three different papers in one paper, 
Uh, and so as it was, we, we gave him double the space. Uh, but you're to, looking, to, but you're looking just to deal with his criticisms of your paper, right? Yeah, basically, I, I can't speak for you know the other authors. I can't. Sp- he responded to Alan Freeman. I, I can't represent Alan Freeman. Mm-hmm. He responded to, to Michael Posner and Mayan Gonzalez. Uh, I can't you know uh, speak for them. Um, so uh, you know, I'll speak for myself in response. Uh, but also, there's so much that I, I really want to and think I need need to say that I, I, it would be way too much to respond to everything mm-hmm. in his article. Yeah. Well, let's try to get into the substance of some of the disagreements. So, you know, Murray is arguing in his paper that you and the other TSSI authors have basically made a straw man of the value form theory, that there is like an extreme value form theory that he calls the exchange-only variant um, in which... Uh, value is completely determined in exchange when commodities uh, exchange with money, but he's saying that um, that that is just sort of like a straw man version, and that there is a better reading that he calls co-constitutive value form theory, co-constitutive value form theory, um, and it's different than the one you're criticizing. And he also argues that that's really what Marx's theory is. So. You know, first of all, what does he mean by a co-constitutive value form theory? And is it is it actually different than the exchange-only uh, variant that he claims is a straw man? Before I answer that, that question, let me say a few things, because my way of dealing with criticism um, might not be familiar to people. What I'm concerned to do, and what I'm always concerned to do in debate, is not just make my points, uh, and I'm not trying to appeal to, to an audience, you know, to get people to like what I'm saying. I'm trying to get at the truth of matters, okay? So when I discuss what Murray says, I'm concerned with its accuracy. Uh, I'm concerned with the accuracy of what he says about Marx, the accuracy of what he says about what I say, the accuracy in terms of how well it matches, how well it fits the world. And I think there are a lot of errors in what Murray says. And so it's not a question of whether I like it or not like it, whether he's entitled to say what he wants to say. You know, I'm not trying to stop anybody from saying what they want to say, but I am trying to convict him of error. You know, famously, John Maynard Keynes says in economics, you can't convict your opponent of errors. You can only, you know, try to persuade him or or convince him. I I don't accept that. Okay, Um, I think that, you know, scholarship and the development of ideas requires that we separate the wheat from the chaff, you know, what is accurate from what is erroneous. Uh, And if we don't get that, we we never get any forward progress because it all gets mushed up together. And, you know, it depends on what you like. And if you happen to like mainlining Lysol, that's as good as, uh, you know, a a, a real cure for uh, the coronavirus and so forth. So I I don't think we can can have that. and I'm, so what I'm concerned to do is to make points and to demonstrate them to the audience, not to appeal to the audience in terms of, you know, you'll like my views more than his views. Uh, I'm not trying to trash somebody. I, I, it's, it's not a question of people. It's a question of what are the points being made? Are they accurate? Are they distorted? Are they completely wrong? And to be able to demonstrate, I have to provide like evidence. I have to provide argument. 
argument. So if I seem to be belaboring points, it's because I'm trying to do more than just get to the bottom line and here's my conclusion, okay? My conclusions don't matter. Nobody should be accepting any conclusions, especially mine, including mine. Nobody should accept any conclusions, you know, just on somebody's say-so or because they happen to like it, okay? I have to demonstrate the points and that's going to take some time. Well, let's deal with some of the specifics of what, you know, Murray's arguing. So, for one, you know, first of all, he's saying that there is a difference between an exchange-only uh, version of value form theory and his version of value form theory, which he thinks is more sophisticated, that he calls co-constitutive value form theory, and and that you have kind of collapsed all value form theories into this um, extreme version of exchange-only. Um, do you uh, you know agree or acknowledge that he's correct that there is a difference between the exchange-only and other types of value form approaches? Yes, there is a difference. How meaningful that difference is, is, is another matter, okay? So he, he, he posits two versions, the exchange-only variant of value form theory and his own shared by other people like uh, Chris Arthur and uh, Heinrich and so forth. He calls that co-constitutive, okay? What he means by the exchange-only variant uh, is the one that holds that commodities values are determined in exchange, full stop. That's the exchange-only variant. Whatever they happen to sell for is their value. So value is the same thing as price. Uh, in Murray's mind, the co-constitutive view is different because it holds that both production and exchange contribute to or somehow involved in constituting a commodity's value. Uh, the commodity has a value in a certain sense when it emerges from the process of production. But that's only a potential value, according to this co-constitutive view. So it obtains a potential value in production, but it obtains only an act. It, it, the commodity only obtains an actual value when it is sold by being sold and the magnitude of its value, how much it's actually worth, becomes fully determinant, they say, only when it's sold and, and, and by being sold. <clears throat> right. The, the, the value is, exists in some sort of potential form that then is realized in exchange. And so you need co-constitutive means that it's constituted two different ways or it's together that there's this production side and that there's this exchange side, right? Yes. I should say a word about realized. And I, he uses generally the word actualized, and I use that as well, because there's another sense of realized uh, in accounting uh, and, and commerce that means something entirely different, like a realized capital gain. And, you know, of course, a, a, a value is only realized when a thing is sold. That's just the definition. You know, you, you, capital gain accrues if the value of the, the stock share or how uh, uh, there's an accrual of a capital gain if, if, if it's worth more than it was before. But the owner only realizes the capital gain by getting cash for that. Okay, so that there, there's no disagreement about the commodities value only being realized in that sense. That's definitional. The real issue is, is commodities value only potential rather than actual prior to sale? Okay, so that's where, you know, I, I think that the value form stuff really doesn't make much sense and it certainly is not Mar Marx's view. We know value form people will argue that, look, if a commodity doesn't get sold, then it never actualizes its value. The person who makes it never receives any money for it. So the process of buying and selling must be an important stage in, in how something becomes value, right? But then on the other hand, we know that 
um, commodities have value before they've been sold. You can go on Amazon and look at the going price for any number of commodities and know that they are worth a certain amount of value before and after they've been sold. Uh, we know sometimes people hold on to commodities instead of money because they retain value, at least some commodities do, over time. Uh, so, so how do we parse out like the relationship of buying and selling to uh, the commodities you know, value? Right. Well, basically what you have expressed is not just on the one hand and the other hand two ways of looking at it. You, you've expressed a contradiction. Okay? Mm-hmm. There is one view of the matter which says that value is not actualized until the commodity is sold. And if mm-hmm. it's not sold, it's never actualized. So the commodity only has at most, one could say, a potential or anticipated value. You have a very op- you have an opposite view when you say, no, you know, I go on to Amazon, I go this way, I, 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 I see what the value of the thing is. Mm-hmm. Okay, it has a value, and 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 people compute the value, and they uh, work with the the amounts of value, accountants, and so forth. All throughout, not only at this end moment when the thing might be exchanged. Okay, you got two very different understandings of value there, and they're contradictory. They're contradictory. So I would never agree that the commodity's value is only actualized when it sells for money. I don't even Mm -hmm. really know what that means. I I know it means that it's supposed to mean that it only sells for money when it sells for money. Okay, that's realized in the commercial sense of like a realized capital gain. Okay, so you know you you have a house; it's worth more. Uh, you you have a capital gain. Capital gain accrues. Okay, you're 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 richer than you were before. That's true whether or not you sell the house. Okay, mm-hmm. and this is not just my view. This is this is the way accountants understand it. Right. Okay, so the capital gain accrues. You're richer. You haven't realized the capital gain in the technical sense that you haven't obtained money. You haven't obtained the increase in value in the form of money. Your increase in value is in the form of the house. It's worth more. Mm-hmm. Okay, But technically speaking, what realization means is if you sell the house and you get more than you paid for it, then you've realized the capital gain. So it's only a question of the increase in value being in the form of money versus physical form. Right, right. Okay. So that that's all I will say. And, and, and to my mind, it's like, it's a whole different kind of issue than what makes value actual, which I, I don't even really understand what that is supposed to be telling us. So, you know, back to Murray's complaint that you were collapsing his co-constitutive value form theory into this exchange-only sort of simplified straw man version. Is, is, that, is that correct? Do you think you were wrong to do that? No, we didn't collapse the one into the other. Uh, it collapses itself. Mm-hmm. But one implies... Well, the bottom line of the so-called uh, co-constitutive version is the same as the bottom line of the exchange-only version. What they both say is that the actual magnitude of, co- of a commodity's value is affected by exchange conditions, what happens at the point of sale. The so-called co-constitutive position is that a commodity's value is not ultimately the potential
potential value it had when it emerged from production process. Because of what happens in exchange, its actual value is a different amount of value. So when all is said and done, the co-constitutive version collapses into the exchange-only version, that the commodity's value is ultimately the amount of money for which it sells. So all this stuff about potential value and actual value reminds me of what Paul Samuelson wrote about the way back when about so-called solutions to the transformation problem. Uh, that was about a half century ago. Here's, here's, here's what he wrote about those so-called solutions. Samuelson writes, quote, contemplate two alternative and discordant systems, one of values, one of production prices. Write one down. Now transform by taking an eraser and rubbing it out. Then fill in the other one. Voila, you have completed your transformation algorithm. So what I think we have here is you write down the potential value of a commodity as it emerges from production. Then you take an eraser and rub that out. Then you write down the actual value that the commodity has when it's sold. Voila. That's your co-constitutive value theory as far as I can see. Murray claims that his co-constitutive value form paradigm is what Marx is doing in Capital. Um, But... you know, you're, you have the opposite view. So how is the co-constitutive uh, value form paradigm different than Marx's theory of how commodities values are determined? Right. I, I should say that Murray is kind of like the cheese that stands alone here. Um, most value form people either say, well, Marx didn't really have, you know, this value form view, uh, or they'll say he was ambivalent and sometimes he had it, sometimes he didn't. Uh, he should have had it. As far as I know, at least among the older generation, Murray is alone in, in saying that, you know, the, the value form stuff is Marx's theory and unambivalently and so forth. Uh, it's There's no real connection. I mean, there's some sort of relationship between it and what Marx said. What Marx said is the opposite of what they say. Uh, I mean, you, you can you can take volume one of Marx's Capital, go into the first chapter, and on the fifth page you read, what exclusively determines the magnitude of value of any article is the amount of labor socially necessary for its production. Okay, that's an unambiguous, straightforward statement. What exclusively determines the magnitude of value of any article is the amount of labor socially necessary for its production. Not, you know, potentially this, but actually actually later in the market. None of that. And I know some people like to glom onto the word socially necessary, you know, and twist them until Marx confesses. Uh, you know, the market determines whether the commodity is socially necessary, yada, yada, yada. Okay. But Marx is not talking in general about what's socially necessary. He's talking about whether the amount of labor that goes into producing the item is socially necessary in order to produce it. He's not talking about whether the commodity is socially necessary. He's talking about whether the amount of labor is socially necessary. He defines on the same page, for God's sakes, he defines the amount of labor being socially necessary to be the amount that is needed to produce the article under normal production conditions and with the average degree of skill and intensity of labor. Okay, So it's what is socially necessary labor is based solely on production conditions, not exchange conditions, not by the social necessity of the commodity or anything like that. Okay, It's just really straightforward. So it actually has nothing to do with whether the commodity even exists or not. It may not be even 
been produced. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it sells. It doesn't even matter whether it's produced. The amount of the, the, the value of that commodity, whether it exists or not, is the amount of labor that is socially necessary, that is needed to produce it, whether or not it's produced under normal conditions of production with the average degree of skill and intensity. That's what he means, okay, by socially necessary. And then we could take things like surplus value, profit. Where does it arise? Well, you know, according to this co-constitutive value form theory, well, it potentially exists when the commodity is produced, but it actually exists and the amount of it changes, you know, depending on what happens at the point of sale. Okay. But if you look like in chapter seven of Capital, where Marx explains the origin of surplus value, according to his theory, he says that the transformation of money into capital, that is to say the, the generation of surplus value or profit, he says, quote, it does not take place in circulation and exchange because what happens there in the exchange process is only an introduction to the valorization process, the process of values self-expanding, which is entirely confined to the sphere of production. Okay, entirely confined to the sphere of production. That's another unambiguous uh, indication of what Marx's theory is. And he's saying here, oh, well, what happens in exchange or circulation is an introduction to all of this because he was thinking of like, you know, in the market, prior to production, workers are hired in the market, means of production are bought in the market, and then they enter into production. So the idea that the later sale of the product of this process could alter the surplus value that was generated in the process, that was like the furthest thing from Marx's mind here. He didn't even mention it. He didn't even mention it in order to say, no, 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 that's not part of what's going on. You know, it was like unimaginable that anybody could think that, like, you know, the surplus value doesn't really exist until the the, the product is sold. At least he didn't mention it right there. So, you know, the, the value form people and Murray, as one of them, they do quote passages from Marx, and they interpret them in ways that they claim suggest that the commodity's value is in term determined in part by what occurs in exchange when it's exchanged after it's been produced right like they might say that uh, well look um the production is for exchange um so the fact that it's going to be exchanged is uh important or um you know uh social socially necessary labor time we don't know what it is until we take our commodity to the market to compare it with other commodities or, you know, we don't know if our commodity has been devalued in some way until it shows up in the marketplace to compare with other commodities. You know, so how how do we address those sort of arguments? Well, there's a, I mean, there are a lot of things that are wrong with all of these arguments. And the essential problem is they, they operate, these people, with too few distinctions. Uh, so everything gets bundled together and you, you, you bundle different things together. You end up with, um, you know, value ultimately being actualized and its magnitude determined in exchange. Uh, let, me, let me address two things that, that you mentioned right there. You know, we don't know and the producer doesn't know and the seller doesn't know what, what the value of a commodity is um, in many cases and only, you know, or the price and only exchange will reveal that. 
Okay. That's a that's a valid point. But there's a confusion there between what is and what we know. Okay. In philosophy, this is known as the distinction between, you know, epistemology, uh, be- between ontology, what is, and epistemology, what we know. So, you know, what exists is independent of what we happen to know. There was, this, there was like, uh, germs creating disease before people had a germ theory of disease. Okay. So, he, commodities have values and, 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 and their values are determinant, you know, fully formed and determinant according to Marx's theory, even if people don't know. So that's the one issue. Um, you mentioned something else right after that. Do you remember? Uh, maybe it was devaluation. Ah, yes. Very, very, very important. Yeah. You also mentioned the idea that, you know, something could have a value and then by the time it gets to market, it no longer has that value. It might not have any value. It might have a lower value. That's absolutely correct. Okay. So to say that values are determined in production, what Marx does not mean by that is that they are fully formed inalterably for all time. They can they can change later. By the time the commodity gets to, to market, it could have a lower value, no value at all. Even subsequent, the thing could be sold and it could be sitting, you know, in your basement, uh, and then it might not have a value anymore. It might have a lower value after sale. The, the values of things are continually changing. Okay, and in Marx's theory, what is exclusively determining the magnitude of the value is not how much labor, you know, it took to produce it originally, but the amount of labor that would be socially necessary to reproduce it right now. Okay, so that is, that's continually changing. So, you know, you, you, you people see passages and and they say. Uh, you know, Marx is saying the thing had a value and now it's got a different value. That's right, and it does not contradict the idea that the magnitude of value is exclusively determined in, in production. You, you get other failures to, to, to make needed distinctions. For instance, when they talk about exchange, there are like two really different meanings of exchange, especially in Marx's work. Um, there's exchange as like a general set of social processes that are such that the market is very involved in, you know, the distribution of products and the allocation of resources. We have, you know, a whole society oriented around exchange. Yeah. And you're, you're always going to get Marx saying, you know, this matters. Then there is a different meaning of exchange. That's a particular phase in the trajectory of a commodity. You know, first it's produced, then it goes to market, then it's sold, then, you know, it may be consumed. And so that exchange is a particular phase of this trajectory. What Marx says is that that particular phase after production, you know, when the commodity is in market, that is not something that determines uh, in any way the, the value of the commodity or the price. So there's a failure to make that distinction, and that's a really important distinction that was noted uh, about a century ago uh, by I.I. Rubin, who was a victim of, of Stalin. So, yeah. Oh, another, another, another issue is Marx will at various times say that demand matters to price and demand even matters to value. And if you don't make the, the needed distinction between dependent on demand conditions and determined in exchange, you're going to take those statements about demand by Marx and say, here, Marx is saying that exchange is determining value. No, he's saying that in part... In very specific ways, demand conditions are are partly determinative of the magnitude of commodities' values. Not maybe in the way that people think about it, but in certain ways, yes. But that's very different from being determined in exchange. I mean, demand does not exist in in, in exchange. The, the demand is a, is a general social 
entity, so to speak, that impinges on what commodities are worth. And the, the, the state of demand, whether or not the, 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 this particular item is being bought and sold at the moment. So Murray writes that your paper criticized the value form paradigm by, quote, identifying money and the monetary character of capitalism as this distinguishing feature. Um, He quoted your statement that, quote, this is particularly pronounced in the work of Arthur, who argues that capitalism is essentially a monetary system. Um, uh, And Murray's response to you was that, quote, capitalism is essentially a monetary system. Money and circulation are essential to it. And money is the actuality of value, and as much as value cannot be actualized without it, uh, and this is a central point in the value form theory. So, you know, what do you think about that response? Uh, I don't think much of it actually. Um, Arthur says capitalism is essentially a monetary system. I replied, Marx didn't agree that it's essentially a monetary system, and I discussed the textual evidence. So Murray comes in, it is too essentially a monetary system. Right. I mean, that's kind of childlike. What are we supposed to do? Go back and forth? Is not? Is too? Yeah. Is not? Yeah. I mean, right. It's not It's not a way of arguing. Um, but he, he does get a little more specific later in the paper. He writes, uh, quote, Kleiman argues that neither money nor circulation is the distinctive feature of capitalism. And then he goes on to argue that they are the distinctive features. Yeah, uh, that was an attempt by him to make it into an issue of me versus them, my view versus their view. Instead of what I was actually doing was addressing Marx's view and Arthur's view. I said, Arthur's position is consonant with everyday thinking. You know, we live in a market-oriented society. Every, you know, money is all around us. Everybody thinks that, 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 that you know, money is the essence of the system. But then I wrote, quote, Marx explicitly rejected the very concept of a money economy because what it, and I'm quoting Marx, what it stresses as the distinctive feature is actually not the economy proper, that is to say the production process itself, but rather the mode of commerce, close quote. So what I did was provide a statement about what Marx's view was. He rejected the concept of a monetary economy because what it stresses as distinctive is not the economy proper the production process, but the mode of commerce, okay? And it's important that we understand that what I'm doing is discussing what Marx's view was because Murray claims that his version of value form theory was Marx's actual theory, and I'm presenting evidence right there that it wasn't. Uh, And you can't properly challenge my textual evidence about what Marx's theory was by Murray telling me why he disagrees with my view. But that's what he was trying to do. So rather than confront the evidence that his view and Marx's view are opposed here, he changed the subject, making it about my view versus their view. And so he makes the whole issue of Marx's view versus their view just disappear in the process. You wrote that instead of money and circulation being capitalism's distinctive features, that Marx singled out um, labor power appearing as a commodity was um, capitalism's distinctive feature. And in response, Marx, or sorry, in response, Murray wrote that, yes, you know, that is a distinctive feature of capitalism, uh, but, you know, but also the monetary system is a distinctive feature and that you don't have to choose between these two features, um, so, you know, how do you reply to that kind of argument? 
Okay, again, first of all, it's irrelevant in this context whether it is or is not distinctive to capitalism that it's a monetary system because the issue here is what Marx identified as capitalism's distinguishing feature. Look, it's possible that capitalism has a whole lot of different distinctive features, you know, things that are not found in other societies. The fact remains that what Marx singled out as the essential distinguishing feature, what he regarded as essential, is the fact that labor power appears as a commodity in, in capitalism. Okay, second of all, when Murray says that it's wrongheaded to want to choose between a monetary economy and commodification of labor power as a distinguishing feature, since they're inseparable and they're both unique to capitalism, well, he, you know, he's, he's right that they're inseparable. He's maybe right about the uniqueness to capitalism, although there have been other monetary economies in some sense. But in any case, he's ignoring other important considerations. Okay, things could be inseparable, unique, but what about the difference between essence and appearance? Okay, he's supposedly de defending the idea here, you know, which Arthur wrote. He's defending the idea that capitalism is essentially a monetary system. So the, the, the difference between essence and appearance matters here, and it's just nowhere in his reply. He's talking about things are inseparable, being unique. What about what's essential versus what's a form of appearance? So what he's saying is if two things are inseparable and they're both unique to capitalism, then it's wrongheaded to, quote, choose between them. But appearances and essences are always inseparable. And some appearances are uniquely appearances of particular essences. And certain appearances may be necessary. They may have to exist in order for the essence to exist. Sure. But none of those things, inseparable, unique, necessary, none of those things turn appearances into essences. They don't eliminate the difference. So they don't make it wrong-headed to say, this over here, the commodification of labor power, that's the essence, you know, while as over here, uh, you know, the monetary aspects of the economy, that's a form of appearance. doesn't make it wrong-headed to say that. And that's what Marx was, was doing. Uh, so when he argues that the commodification of labor power is, the, you know, the, the distinguishing characteristic of the capitalist mode of production, Marx explicitly rejected the idea that he was saying that because of the form of appearance, you know, because in the, quote, because in the form of wages, labor is bought with money. That was not his point. The commodification of labor power was to him the essence. Purchasing labor power by paying money wages was just the form of appearance. Uh, and relatedly, in the same place, this is in volume two of Capital, relatedly, Marx stressed that the commodification of labor power is the essence, while the purchase and sale of labor power is just the form of appearance that the commodification of labor power takes. Uh, he wrote, quote, uh, once labor power is found on the market as a commodity, its sale and purchase is no more striking than the sale and purchase of any other commodity. What is characteristic, you know, of capitalism is not that the commodity labor power can be bought, but the fact that labor power appears as a commodity, close quote. Now, for a lot of people, they, they can't make heads or tails of this. You know, what's the difference between something being a commodity and being bought? You know, to them, it's the same thing. But no, for Marx, there's a distinction telling us was that the essential characteristic here it isn't what goes on in the market, but the continually renewed separation of working people from means of production of their own. And that was, is what turns labor power into commodity, okay? And once labor power is a commodity because the workers are separated from their own means of production, then, of course, the commodity labor power can be bought and sold, okay? But that's just a form of appearance of the relationship. The essential relationship is that the workers are separated from their own means of production.
That's what makes this capitalism. That was Marx's view. So also on this issue of money being necessary and inseparable to other things in capitalism, Murray objected to something you wrote about Proudhonism in your paper. You wrote, quote, by developing the money form of value from out of the duality inherent in each commodity, he showed that the money relations against which Proudhonist railed are manifestations rather than essences, merely the necessary consequence of the inherent contradictions of commodities and commodity production, end quote. And Murray responded, merely, necessary, inherent, climate rights as if their mistake was to focus on money when value is the real target. True as far as it goes, but Marx's value form point is that money and value are inseparable. Yeah, here we have the same problem uh, in play. Murray's aversion, uh, at least in this case, it's an aversion to distinguishing between essence and appearance. Uh, and you see this when he mocks the fact that I wrote merely the necessary consequence. It was merely necessary? I mean, how could something be merely if it's necessary? But I'm sure that if we had a different context, he'd see how ludicrous it is to object to saying that what's necessary is merely. Um, imagine you got somebody who he gets stabbed in the heart multiple times. So his shirt is sopping wet with blood. The blood is inseparable from the stabbing. And the blood's a necessary consequence of the stabbing. Absolutely necessary consequence. You know, but hello, the blood is indeed merely a necessary consequence. The essential change that's taken place here, the key cause of the bleeding, is that the guy was stabbed in the heart, okay? Not the fact that the shirt's sopping wet with blood. So I would say, like, in a certain sense, the Perdonists and the value formists are like somebody who makes a big thing out of the fact that, guys, that the guy's got blood all over his shirt while they have a whole lot less to say about if not completely ignore the fact that he was stabbed you know so something can be necessary but doesn't make it the, the essential thing that's going on so murray claims that marx's point here was that money and value are inseparable i i just don't find that plausible at all it doesn't take a marx to tell us that money and value are inseparable anybody can make that point something every child knows so to speak i mean is it at all plausible that marx spent hundreds of hours over many, many, many years in an effort to make the obvious point that money and value are inseparable? No, the, the textual evidence is pretty damn clear that his point against the Perdonists here was uh, that their mistake was to focus on money when value and commodity production were the, should have been their real targets. Um, can I give a couple of examples? Yes, please do. Chapter 1 of Volume 1 of Capital, uh, in that famous first uh, third section on the value form. Uh, and then again in the second chapter, Marx criticizes what he calls the petty bourgeois socialism of Proudhon and others who want to get rid of money uh, but keep uh, the production of commodities in existence. And in both places, he compares their position to wanting to get rid of the Pope, not any particular Pope, the position of Pope. You know, he compares it to somebody who would want to get rid of the position of Pope while leave, leaving Catholicism in existence. It's pretty weird when you have an author say one thing in chapter one and then just a few pages later, really, say the exact same thing with the exact same analogy in chapter two. But that's what Marx did. So what is the point here? The fact that there's a pope, that's merely the necessary consequence of Catholicism. I mean, that's the way Catholicism works. If you don't want there to be a pope, you have to eliminate Catholicism. Not yammer on and on about, you know, how bad the pope is. Okay? If you don't want a guy's shirt to become sopping wet with blood, you have to 
to prevent him from being stabbed, not yammer on and on about how horrible the blood is. And if you don't like capitalism's monetary relations and their effects, you have to get rid of commodity production and value, not yammer on and on about capitalism being essentially a monetary system. Um, that's what I think Marx is trying to show in that whole third section of chapter one on the, on the value form. As we do in every episode, we're going to take a moment to hear from Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Hello, this is Anne Jacquard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. You know, when Marx was arguing against Proudhon, there were real political questions at stake, not just sort of abstract theoretical things. Are there also political issues at stake here in this debate over the value form? There are definitely political issues that uh, the controversy impinges on. Uh, are they trying to make a particular political point? I don't know. It's generally not you know, stated in their writings. Um, but clearly, whole sets of issues concerning redistributionist politics, opposition to neoliberalism, thinking that there's something, you know, particularly bad about uh, the greater prominence of finance and money <clears throat> that we have now as compared to, let's say, a half century ago. All of those kinds of things are caught up here. Um, you know, and I view the prevalence of value form theory today uh you know, as part and parcel of this move of the left to um, demonize neoliberalism, 
you know, rather than focusing their ire on the capitalist mode of production. But I, I can't say in any particular case, you know, that any author in particular has any political motives here. It, it's just not clear from the writing. Um, but there, there is a lot of railing against the Pope instead of Catholicism. There is a lot of railing against, you know, certain monetary forms of appearance and markets uh, and much less on capitalist production in their writings. Well, we're going to have to make this a two-part episode, I believe, because there is a lot more to talk about. So stay tuned for the next episode of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast, where we will bring you the second part of this conversation about value form theory and about Andrew's debate with Patrick Murray. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org and leave us a comment. You can listen to more episodes there. Please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. Leave us a comment, rate the podcast, share it with friends and enemies. And of course, we would love to hear from you. So leave us a comment, drop us a line. <laughs>